and I'd like to do it under three headings. Uh, first of all, the texts, and then his titles, and then the times, so three T's. You might be able to remember it. What texts, what sentences in the Bible say the purpose for which Jesus came? What titles does he have? In other words, what official roles or official jobs does he have? As we have official roles on earth, like police officer, doctor, teacher, does Jesus have similar official jobs? And then lastly, and more briefly, the time scale of what Jesus does, of his work. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, this is all rather unnecessary, and it sounds as though it's going to be fairly boring. Um, all we need to know is that Jesus loves us. So you might be thinking that. And that's not a bad objection. The Apostle Paul talked about the love of Jesus Christ, and he said something like this. He says, I pray for you, that you, he was talking to some Christians who lived in Ephesus, he was talking to the Ephesian Christians, I pray that you being rooted and grounded in love may have power to grasp the height and breadth and length and depth of the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And he was saying, I want you to know about the love of God but he was saying that this is a really big matter, uh, that you need to be rooted and established in love, and that you need power if you're going to grasp what this love is because it's so big. And to know this, it's something that surpasses knowledge. So I would say that even if you said all we need to know is his love, I would say his love is big. It's not easy to grasp and his love is deep it's not simple I use the word facile there because that's what I was trying to say it is, it is simple in a way but it's not the sort of simple easy oh well that's obvious sort of simple and his love is rich it's not undemanding it's actually easy to get the wrong end of the stick about the love of Jesus so even if you were to say, well, all we need to know is the love of Jesus, I would say that is a big thing to want to know. And the best way to really understand the love of Jesus, I would say, is to do exactly what we're doing, to study, to consider, to reflect, to ponder the person of Christ and the work of Christ. So even if you were objecting, I'm just going to carry straight on anyway. So let's look at texts. Now, if you're good at finding places in the Bible, you might want to chase these up. But if you're not good at it, don't worry, because they're up on the screen and I'm going to read them out anyway. So let's first of all look at some texts in the Bible which say, Jesus came to X, Y, Z. And we'll look and see what they tell us. So my first text is Mark chapter 1, verse 38. So I'm going to find this in my Bible, and if you're good at looking things up, 
You might beat me. If you're not good, don't worry about it. Uh, it'll re we'll read it anyway. So Mark 1:38 is a statement of purpose. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. It's a statement of purpose, isn't it? Why has he come? Jesus says, I have come to preach. To preach meaning to herald, to proclaim, to tell people good news in a way that perhaps a, a midwife might uh, tell a dad that he's just become a dad. That's telling good news to Jesus. Jesus has come to bring good news, to, to preach. So that's a statement of purpose, isn't it? You, you with me so far? This is the easy bit. You are with me so far? Yes, okay. So uh, now I'm not going to stop there because I th I've put a little arrow to say I think he's come to do more than that. Okay, so let's, let's take it on a bit at a time. So one thing he definitely came to do is tell us stuff. So we're to listen to what he says. That would be the logical response. Now let's look at Mark 10.45 because Jesus says something more. This is a statement of purpose. Mark 10.45. It's in the context of people being jealous of one another. And Jesus says, this is the way I look at things like this, verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Okay, that's a statement of purpose, isn't it? He did not come to be served, but to serve. So Jesus has come to do something for us, to serve us. And the particular thing which you can spot there, the particular service is, it says, to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life a ransom for many. So what does this text tell us? It tells us that he's come to serve us, to serve others, to serve people who actually don't deserve to be served. That's what he's come to do. And he's come to give his life as a ransom. Now what's a ransom? A ransom is a huge payment or a huge deed to set people free, to set slaves free, actually, is the usual use of that. And Jesus says that he's come to pay a huge price to set slaves free. And what's the huge price? To give, it says, his life. So here's a statement of purpose. He came to preach, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Uh, he's referring to his death, isn't he? He came to die. It's a very unusual statement because for most people you would say, what's your purpose in life? Well, it's to live, to earn this or to get this job or to have a family or whatever it is in life. But Jesus is saying, I came actually, and one of the main points was for me to die in a certain way to achieve a certain effect. But I think we could say more than that. Please turn to John's Gospel, chapter 6. 
John 6:38. Here again is another statement of purpose. Please look at this very carefully and notice carefully what it says. I have come down from heaven, John 6:38, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So Jesus is saying that he's under orders. You could almost say he's been given a job to do. The Father has a will, and he sent Jesus to do what this will is. And the next verses show the will from two different viewpoints. God's will is a big, mysterious thing. We don't understand God's will fully, but I would say you could think of it as being on two levels. And we'll do the easy level first. So God's will, part A and part B. Part B first, verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. So this is the job that God has given to Jesus to do so that everyone who looks to him, meaning to say, looks with a, a look of faith, you know, oh Lord, I'm looking to you. Everybody who looks to him and believes in him shall have eternal life. So it's Jesus' job to make sure that happens. And it's Jesus' job to raise that person on the last day. So if you have looked to Jesus, if you have believed in him, Jesus has the task of making sure that you are raised on the last day. That's his job. And I would say that this is the will of the Father. It's the revealed will. And this is the job he's given Jesus to do, to save everyone who looks to him or believes in him. So that's part B of what the will of the Father is. And we can say that very clearly. So if you are sitting here this morning and you think, I need to be raised on the last day, I want eternal life, then it's very simple. You simply look to and believe in Jesus and then it's his job to make sure all that happens. Let's look at, this, at uh, the first reference to the will, which is in verse 39. So I went forward a verse, I've jumped back a verse. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but raise them at the last day. It's a very similar statement, but it's a little bit different. So the, the, the one we looked at first said, us looking, Jesus raising. That was the sequence. This one says... Take it to pieces. What's the first thing that happens? The Father gives people to Jesus. The first thing that happens is the Father gives people to Jesus. The second thing that happens is that Jesus keeps them safe. And the third thing that happens is he raises them on the last day. This is my Father's will. I shall lose none of all that he has given me but raise them up at the last day. And I would suggest to you that this 
aspect of God's will is more mysterious because we don't know who he's given. We don't know who the Father has given to Jesus. Jesus knows, but we don't know. There's something hidden about that. The idea that the Father gives, Jesus saves, keeps and raises them up at the last day, I would say that that is a mysterious hidden will and that we could say from this that Jesus is tasked by the Father with saving these people. Does that make sense from those verses? But I think we can go further than that. Let's look at some more verses. Let's look at John chapter 10, verse 18, which touches on something that we haven't yet said. John 10, 18, where Jesus says, in verse 17, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. So Jesus says, I have received a command from my father. He said, this is the job I want you to do. This is the work I want you to accomplish. And he this time says it in two parts to lay down my life and to take it up again. So that's an aspect we haven't noted yet. Not only to make a sacrifice on the cross, but be raised from the dead. So Jesus has been given the command to die and to take his life up again and to rise from the dead. But we can go further. Let's nip back to John chapter 5 and see another task that's been given to Jesus. John 5.22. So don't worry if you can't find it, but I'll read it out. John 5.22 Jesus says, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And in chapter 5, verse 27, Jesus says, he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Uh, Do not be amazed at this. A time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear Jesus' voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. So here is more about what the tasks given to Jesus. To raise the dead on the last day and to judge. Those who have, it says, done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. And there will be a judgment And Jesus is the judge. That's part of his work. And those who have trusted their lives to him and therefore have lived a changed life, he will give eternal life. And those who have shied away from him, ignored him, and therefore their lives are untouched, will be condemned. That's what it says. That's the work of Jesus. But I can say there's more to it than that. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1. 
verse 19. Colossians 1, verse 19. For, which is what Aaron read to us. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile, this is through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is saying even more, isn't it? Because it is to reconcile, this is the work of Jesus to reconcile all things on earth and in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So how much is left out? Answer, nothing. This is the work of Jesus Christ as it takes in not only people, but stars, planets, mountains, hills, oceans, spiritual beings, everything that there is in heaven and on earth, which is at the moment in disorder, and to bring it all back in an orderly and harmonious way to reconcile to himself all things and to produce an ordered, harmonious cosmos, a new world. And that's what Jesus was achieving by his death on the cross. Can we go further? Well, we could go half a millimeter further by saying, by quoting 1 Corinthians 15, 24. In which the work of Jesus is put like this, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, when it's, uh, For he put everything under his feet. When it says everything has been put under him, it's clear it does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When, this is, when he has done this, the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. And that is again to state that the work of Jesus Christ is not completed until Jesus has ruled over this world of history and made all things new, cast out all that is evil and remade a cosmos where everything is put back in order and where God himself is fully and gloriously central. And then it says, God may be all in all. And when we got to that point, I don't think there's any more to add. Uh, and we have sort of gone step by step through all the range of the texts that say the tasks that Jesus has been given to do. And as you can see, it's actually more than you thought it was. It goes further than you think it does. And it all hinges on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
So let me ask you before I go on, seeing as this is what the texts are saying, uh, which side of his work are you? So seeing as Jesus has got this huge work of saving, of, of preaching, of dying for people, of rising, and in, in the end of, of remaking the whole world, is that something that you would say, wow, I'm in on that. He's my saviour, and if that's what he's doing, I'm totally up for it. Are you aligned with it, or not aligned with it? Would you say this morning, this comes as a complete shock. I had no idea that Jesus had such large, pur large purposes, and to be honest, I'm adrift. I'm not part of that at all. This is going to leave me out. Or is it actually something that you're against? That in a very polite way, you've said to Jesus, I'm actually not interested in your way of doing things. I'm not actually interested in who you are or what you came to do. You just carry on without me, which is really a way of saying I'm actually against you. And I ask you to ponder whether it is a wise choice to set yourself adrift from or against this person with this work and this agenda? Are you, in other words, a glad beneficiary or are you a baffled bystander? This is the work of Jesus Christ. Let's move on and look at his titles. So that was the texts. Let's look at his official titles. So you know what an official title is. Official title is prime minister or mayor or chief surgeon or neighborhood inspector. And you can make a difference between the person and the job. You can make that difference. So the prime minister isn't always going to be David Cameron. You might find that uh, disappointment or you might find it a relief but uh, you can differentiate between the name of the person and the job they have to do and uh, for example our neighborhood inspector used to be Gareth Davis who came to our men's breakfast once and it's now Brian McCarthy so you've got two different people but they do the same job now are there any official jobs that Jesus is given to do and if you think about it well let's think about it so I'm going to enlist your help so here's one. Anybody help on this? Here's a job that Jesus has been given to do. It's G something something D. No, 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 no. Steady on, Ross. Yes. Good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, I didn't do the letters right. The good shepherd is a, has a job to do. I'm the good shepherd and I... Care for the sheep? Lay down my life for the sheep. Uh, here's another title. That was from John 10. Here's another title. The L something something B of G something D. That's an easy one. Uh, and then there's something that follows on after that. Uh, thank you very much, Terry. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Okay, that's a title for Jesus. Gives a, a job uh, with a job description. Here's uh, Revelation 5 5. B R something something C H of D something V something D. Yeah, branch of David. I cheated slightly because it actually says the root and stem of David, but um, it, that's the, the, the branch of David. So um, where the where David was the, the king of Israel, you know that, the royal family of Israel, and it got chopped off, but it grows back again, and he's the branch of, of David. And this king, uh, anybody like to say what this king does? And it involves an iron rod. He rules with a, a, rules with a rod, rod of iron, doesn't he? Uh, and well, here's a simple one. Hebrews 1 verse 2. He is the S something son. Yeah. God spoke to us in times past in different ways through the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son, who is the heir of all things and the express image of his character. So you might say, well, that, that's not a role. That's, that's just who he is. It's probably true. Uh, Hebrews 8 verse 1 says that Jesus is this person, H-I something something, P something, da, 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 with a T at the end. Anybody? A high priest. We have such a high priest. Uh, such a high priest. Anybody tell us what the, the job, that part of the job that is re referenced there is? We have such a high priest who meets our need, I think it says, doesn't it? Uh, mediator, yep. Yep. Uh, he, he, in that se section here, he does gifts and sacrifices. So he makes sacrifices, let's put that. Uh, John 1, 49 is what I quoted at the beginning, what Nathaniel said. You are the king of Israel. Uh, and uh, oh, there's a long one here. This is John 3:29. Jesus says he is the bridegroom. That was very quick. Bridegroom. What does the bridegroom come to do? What is the work of the bridegroom? Take his bride. Yes, that's right. He comes to, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. So he comes to, to find his bride and to carry her off and to smarten her up and make her beautiful and marry her. Yeah, he's the bridegroom. The bride is the church. Yeah. One, one. He is the word of God. John one, one. And in Mark 6, 4, he says that he's this because he's not accepted in his hometown. A prophet. And a prophet is never accepted in his hometown. Uh, the more you think about it, the more of those titles you could come up with. I mean, I don't know how many I've got there. Eight, ten, twelve. I put some more down. He's the temple builder. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. He's the pourer out of the spirit. Um, the one, um, he came to baptize with the spirit. He's the destroyer of the works of the devil. 
He came to destroy the works of the devil. We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? He's the suffering servant. We esteemed him smitten, stricken by God and afflicted, but he was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. He's the suffering servant. Uh, Psalm 22, he's just the innocent sufferer who seems to suffer for no reason at all. And you could go on and on and on and on like that. And they're all descriptions of aspects and the richness of Jesus Christ. And I know exactly what you're thinking now. I know exactly what you're thinking. You are thinking. Here's a picture of you thinking it. There's a picture of you thinking it. You're thinking, aha, you are thinking. You're thinking, Moonus triplex. That's what you're thinking. Well, you would think that if you were Calvin uh, or if you're one of the church fathers. So the Munus triplex is Latin for the threefold office of Christ, the threefold official job that he's been given to do. And this is the theory that, you'll remember it because it was in Latin, uh, that you can boil down all the previous three, uh, all the previous multiple titles, you can boil them down to three. And the three that the early church fathers came up with, and uh, at the time of the Reformation, Calvin really went to town on this, is to say you can boil those down to three, prophet and priest and king. It's not a bad idea. The prophet comes to reveal God and show us his way of salvation, which fits in with what Jesus said, I've come to preach. Uh, and a prophet is not, uh, is not accepted in his hometown, and he is the word of God. And the priest is the one who makes sacrifice and provision for sin, so that covers an awful lot of ground there. And the king is the anointed one who comes to subdue. First of all, he subdues us because we're, we're rebellious and we're like kids having a tantrum that go off all over the place and roll on the floor in Sainsbury's. And Jesus grabs hold of us and sorts us out and subdues us, first of all. And then when we're his people, when we've come to our right mind, he protects us. So in his kingly power, he's our deliverer. And he defends us, which would fit in with the idea of losing none. Uh, and he vanquishes his and our enemies. So prophet, priest, and king, and it certainly does cover an awful lot of ground. And I would say this about the, the threefold office of Christ. If you read Reformed theology, you get a huge, this is the way it's treated, but I, and so I'm, I'm referencing that. Is it taught in the Bible? Well, I'd say pretty much. Pretty much, yes. Jesus is certainly the high priest. He's certainly the king. He's referred to as a prophet with some um, tweaks on that. Is it a useful idea to help us? Well, I think definitely it is. So if you go away thinking, I never thought of that, Jesus as my prophet, priest, and king, that's worth thinking about, and it is worth thinking about. However, I'm going to say, is it complete and watertight? And I'd say probably not, because where do you put temple builder? Where do you put pourer out of the spirit? 
and it does say he's the lamb. Uh, so you're going to have to say he's the priest who offers the lamb who is also himself. So you, you get, it gets a little bit complicated. And if I was being really critical, I would say it's a little bit over-tidy. And some theologians can take that on, I think, well beyond its sell-by date, really. But uh, it, it's not, you know, it's worth taking with us, isn't it? Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. But he's not three saviors. It's one work, one salvation, culminating in a new world, a new cosmos for God. Let me just say, we're inclined to think that Jesus' work is all about us. And I have to say, he does more for us than we possibly deserve. And it is totally amazing. But it isn't all about us. It's all about God. And God deserves to have a new world. And God deserves to be put back in his proper place as he should. And that's the work that God has given Jesus to do. And I would say that uh, these titles give us a very rich and deep insight into the work of Christ. And the Hebrews says, consider him. And we could do far worse, couldn't we? Consider him. Think about him. Think about what he's come to do. Think about all those ways it's described. Third point, time. It's important to bring in that there is a time sequence to what Jesus does, did, and will do. The work of Jesus is not all done at once. And please understand me, it's true that his work is now not completely finished. Or I've put not completely done, although the price is paid and the labor is finished. Remember Jesus said on the cross, uh, accomplished, mission accomplished. So let's look at the time. So I've got a timeline going along here. Let's think of the things that Jesus accomplished step by step. So the first thing uh, that we have, um, as it sort of affects us, is that he came to earth. And if you want a long name for it, it's the incarnation. He became flesh. And then during his time on earth, he became obedient and he learnt obedience. So he had a period of humbling. And he had a period of suffering of which the most intense focus was the cross. So the graph, if you like, I've drawn a sort of graph which comes down, 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 down. And at the cross, it goes off the scale because we may not know, we cannot tell what pain he had to bear. But we believe it was for us. He hung and suffered there. So he came down and his work took that stage. And then, following this, we have the graph going up. So I've made it impossible for me to move the piece of paper to see this properly, so I have to do that. There's the resurrection, where Jesus comes alive from the dead. But that's not all. There is the ascension, where Jesus' physical body leaves this part of creation to be in the presence of God. 
There is his enthronement at which Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit. Seated at the right hand of God, he now pours out what you see and hear. And he is currently in heaven, ruling during this period of history. And during this period of history, things go ballistic in terms of the gospel. So there's a whoosh of the gospel going out to all the nations, and he's extending his kingdom. And at the end of that period, there will be his coming. And at his coming, he will bring salvation to his people and judgment to those who are not his people. And then there'll be an even bigger whoosh as all things are made new and there is a new heaven and a new earth. So you see, there's a time scale here. It doesn't all happen at once. And the time scale and the sequence is important. Jesus himself said to his disciples, because they were disillusioned, because it hadn't all happened at once, didn't the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? That's the way. There's a sequence to it. So we notice that this is a time of grace. This is a time when Jesus is patiently holding back on judgment and saying, now's the time for you to come. Now's the time for you to come and sort out with me the issue of your sins, the issue of who runs your life, the issue of what your life's all about and where you're going. Now's the time to sort that out. In future, there will be a day when it's too late. Now's the window of opportunity. Please take it. And I note, for example, also, that all the way through that graph, he was king all the way through. Please don't think he becomes king only when he's enthroned. He's sort of recognized as king, but when he died on the cross, he was a king on the cross. He was doing on the cross what a king would do for his people. He was defending us. He was purchasing us. He was rescuing us. He was a king on the cross. And let me say that just as surely as he's done all the other things he's been asked to do, he will come and complete his work. He will come, every eye will see him. He will return, bring in the day of judgment, and make all things new. You might not have known that, or you might not have even thought about it. That's one of the things Jesus tells us. So, we've looked at a lot of stuff, but I want to say you if you're a believer there was a lot of stuff but it's good stuff isn't it tells us about a really great saviour who does more for us and has done more and will do more than we quite grasped it enriches us it makes us glad it does us good and let me say if you're not a believer if you're pers not a person of faith let me just put the question like this if this is true where on earth does it leave you?
We're going to sing together number 306.